Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. My guest for this episode is Oz Guinness, who is the author of more than 30 books, including The Case for Civility, Time for Truth, and Signals of Transcendence. On this program, I'll be talking with him about a book he published 50 years ago entitled The Dust of Death, The 60s Counterculture and How It Changed America Forever. Originally published back in 1973, this book has recently come out in a new edition. And Oz Guinness, thanks for joining me for this conversation. It's great to talk with you again. Always a pleasure, Shane. Thank you. So was The Dust of Death the first book you ever wrote? It was the first book I ever thought of writing. In fact, I never set out to be a writer. But in 1968, I was living in Switzerland at Brie with Francis Schaeffer. And I came over that autumn and spent six weeks going from the East Coast to the West Coast. And it was such a powerful impact on my thinking and all that I saw But I went back and cooked up a a series of 10 lectures on America as I saw it then. And people came up after and said, this is fascinating. Why didn't you write it? And I I just sloughed it off. Eventually, my English teacher from school in England came and he said, you really should write this. Hmm. And that was the first time I took it seriously. Well, for me, it was always one of those books that I knew was important, but I just never got around to reading. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but... (laughs) As I recently read this updated edition, I realized there are a number of important things you addressed back then in the early 70s that in many ways I think have some parallels to what's going on today. So before we talk about this particular book and how it relates to the present moment, can you first tell our listeners a little bit about your own background, such as your experience growing up, and then what sort of things you observed that led you to write The Dust of Death? Well, I was actually born in China. My parents and grandparents before me were medical missionaries in China. You know, I come from the Guinness Brewing family, and I'm part of a branch of it that kept the faith from the beginning. My grandfather was one of the first Western doctors to go to China. And so that's where I was born and grew up till I was 10. So I had the dubious privilege of witnessing 
the climax of the Chinese Revolution. And certainly those years, which were horrendous years for my parents, uh, they've shaped me with a realism about human life and particularly with a realism about Marxism. In the preface to this new edition, you refer to our time as a present obsessed myopia. What do you mean by that? And how does this myopia keep us from truly perceiving and understanding this cultural moment that we find ourselves in? Well, I was surprised when the publishers very kindly offered to put the book out again. But I was delighted because 1968, 60s as a whole, but 68 in particular, is really the key to understanding where we are today. Now, the simple fact is, as your question raises, modern people don't understand where we are today because they don't have a good sense of history. And you can see that the whole thrust towards modernity, you know, presentism, what C.S. Lewis and his friends called chronological snobbery, you know, the latest is always better, and so on. Well, this is nonsense. Right. And we as followers of Jesus, we look in the Bible, that stress on remembering and history as a key to identity and to understanding and continuity. But Americans don't know that. So sadly, whether it's young Christian Americans or just young Americans at all, you can see that they have no sense of history. And so they're vulnerable to the left-wing radical ideas in terms, say, of Howard Zinn view of history or right. the 1619 Project view of history and so on. So history is absolutely vital. You say that no one can understand the present crisis in the U.S. and the West without understanding the 60s. Why? Well, Shane, let me go back. You know, we are the heirs of the French Revolution in many of our political ideas today. Now, let me be clear. The French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. 1799, Napoleon came and said, the revolution is over. He was a dictator. But it was like a huge volcanic explosion, and the lava has flowed out ever since. In the 19th century, it created revolutionary nationalism. That's less well known. The 20th century branch is the more famous, although it was concocted in the 19th, revolutionary socialism, in other words, communism. And we still have the People's Republic of China. But what we're seeing in the West is what I call the third form, revolutionary liberationism, or cultural Marxism, or neo-Marxism, or some call it a user-friendly Marxism. Hmm. That became very important before you were born with Herbert Marcuse in California. And it was at the end of the 60s that he and the leader of the Red Brigade in Germany, called Rudi Deutschke, they called for a long march through the institutions. Yeah. The original Long March was 1934 in China, Mao Zedong. He escaped from the encircling nationalist armies, went round on a 6,000-mile detour, regrouped, came down and won the whole thing. And the radicals knew, because the year I came here, that was why it was so important looking back, 100 American cities were on fire, far worse than today. Hmm. Martin Luther King, assassinated. Bobby Kennedy, assassinated. But, and here's the point, the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. They needed a long march. In other words, they had to win the universities and colleges and high schools, the press and the media, and the world that they call the culture industry, Hollywood and entertainment. 
And then they could win the gatekeepers and gain what they still call hegemony or dominance. Yeah. And of course, that's what they've done. 50 years later, they're inroads into the universities. Now, we see it in terms of speech codes and cancel culture and so on. But it's been a 50-year-long march of the cultural left, radical left. And what you've seen is a convergence of neo-Marxism and postmodernism. Explain that. Well, I described neo-Marxism. In the 80s and 90s, in the universities, that converged with postmodernism. God is dead. Truth is dead. Everything is relative, culturally relative, and socially constructive. Right. And you had thinkers like Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida and people like that. And they had the idea that at its root, everything is power. So you know the central idea. You analyze discourse, in other words, how a society speaks, and you analyze what they call the pyramids of power, all the social relations. And you're looking for the oppressor, the oppressed, the majority, the minority, the bully and the victim. And then when you found the victim, and you can look in gender issues, men and women, you can look in race issues, black and white, right. you can look in generational issues, the young and the old, you can look in handicapped world or so-called fat studies and queer studies. But always, when you found a victim, you can, quote, weaponize them yeah. to use an assault on the status quo. And that idea spread very powerfully, and it's undermining the principles of the American Revolution. So can you contrast the differences between the ideals of the American Revolution and the ideals of the French Revolution? Like, How are they ideologically different, and how are those effects still with us today? The American Revolution primary source is the Bible. It doesn't mean everyone was Christian or America was a Christian nation, no. But the primary ideas came from the Bible. The French Revolution came from the French Enlightenment. Voltaire, Diderot, people like that, Rousseau above all. They had different views, secondly, of nature, human nature. The Old Testament has the first checks and balances in history what the Jews call the three crowns of government, the king, the priest, the prophet. The prophet had the authority to correct the king. Right. Nothing like that in any other ancient world. And, of course, you see that in Montesquieu, and you see it checks and balances through Witherspoon and through James Madison in separation of powers. It's in the Bible. Yep. Whereas the French Revolution was utopian. Man was born free, everywhere in chains, remove a chain or two, and we'll all be happy, free, and fulfilled. And sin is external. Exactly. Institutional. And that's behind the sexual revolution, which, of course, is rooted in Paris, too, not just the political revolution. Hmm. Well, you could go on down the line, the different view of freedom. The biblical view is what John Winthrop called federal liberty. And you know that federal was originally the Latin word covenant. In other words, freedom within the framework of the covenant. Freedom is not the permission to do what you like. Libertarianism, what used to be called license, freedom is the power to do what you ought. Hmm. Covenantal freedom. So you've got different views of freedom. But for me, you go on down the line. Drastic differences, and they come out incredibly differently. Yeah. But the big one today is how do you address wrongs? And that intrigues me because you think of freedom, Shane, 
The biblical view of freedom is unique. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, modern atheists like Richard Dawkins, none of them have anything like it. There is no freedom in these alternative positions. You have karma, you have the stars, you have the Greek fate, you have modern determinism, chemically or whatever. Biblical freedom is unique, but justice isn't unique. The question is, who's justice? Right. We all agree there is injustice. Slavery was evil. Thank God it was Christians who led the abolition. Racism is evil. We agree on the egregious wrongs. We disagree on the responses. Right. In other words, the radical left, it only has one principle, power. So they're not interested in individuals, but only groups. And there's no final liberation for individuals or for groups. You just have an endless power conflict and you end, this is cutting a, a long argument short, you end with what the Romans called the peace of despotism. Hmm. In other words, you finally have a dominant power which no other power can resist. And that's absolutely deadly and no better than revolutionary communism. So in your opening chapter, you wrote about the rise of a kind of optimistic humanism with its belief in the perfectibility of man's nature, along with a variety of utopian aspirations. But you also talked about a surfacing pessimism that soon followed on the heels of that humanism. Can you talk about that for a moment? Uh, how and why would a new form of pessimism follow on the heels of an optimistic humanism? Well, the optimism came from the 18th century and its utopian ideas. In other words, reason would replace revelation, science would replace the Bible, heaven on earth would replace heaven, and so on. But the 20th century collapsed that, beginning with the carnage, the terrible carnage of World War I. You think of Einstein. Would that we could look on the earth from the vantage point of Mars, yeah. and we wouldn't be bothered with how futile it is. So World War I, and then the 30s and 40s and the rise of the secular gods, national socialism, communism, and so on. And people like Huxley, Orwell, or Lewis's abolition of man, or things like that, they were aware. Then came the 60s, and you added the nuclear issue. And so it was Jean-Paul Sartre in the 60s who was saying, we are seeing the striptease of humanism, all these fancy, brave ideas stripped off by the chill winds of history. But then, of course, we're beyond that. And you can see today, we are, as it's put very simply, we're post-Auschwitz, we are post-Hiroshima, and we are pre-singularity. So what does it say of us at the end of that? Whoever did Auschwitz is the same species as we are. Yeah. How do we defend ourselves? Well, we blow the others off the earth and blow much of the earth and maybe ourselves too. And you look at singularity and transhumanism, not transgender, transhumanism, and you see we're talking of a techno-humanity that would be repellent to humanity as most people have known it now. Now, in other words, where is humankind at the end of the 20th century? In profound trouble. And now we can see the glory of what I call the Genesis Declaration. The humans are made in the image of God and never as the contrast shined more clearly. Later in that chapter, you noted that man with his memories of Eden is never at rest east of Eden. 
and he repeatedly throws himself on the flaming drawn sword of the angel. And you also argued that secular utopian visions were basically new attempts to build a kind of Tower of Babel, which attempted to bridge the gulf between heaven and earth, and which only result in confusion. Well, you know, coming out of World War I, you had the very famous essay by Stefan Zweig, the Austrian novelist, called The Tower of Babel. Hmm. And unlike Einstein and many others who saw only disaster in World War I, Zweig says we've got to redouble our efforts. And the essay finishes its absolutely magnificent insight into humanism. He says, who are these builders of Babel who must resume the building of the tower? They are those who want to defy their creator. Wow. Now, think of that, Shane, because think of Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr used to say there are two bookends of history. At one extreme, authoritarianism. In other words, order without freedom. At the other extreme, anarchy, freedom without any order. Now, as he put it, and the Jews put it, you see all of those in the prehistory of humanity in Genesis 1 to 11. So the flood situation, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, like the later judges, such violence the Lord regrets he's made humanity. That's anarchy. And anarchy ends in terrible violence and a swing to the opposite extreme. The other extreme is the Tower of Babel. With the Tower of Babel, it was proto-totalitarian. Interesting. Now, those are the bookends of history. We look at our world, China, North Korea, Cuba, and so on. They represent that side. American freedom coming from the Old Testament, covenantal, was once an ordered freedom. In other words, it was the balance between those two. But increasingly, we're being pulled both ways towards the anarchy you see in the streets and in our morals and family life and so on. You can see sexually a lot of impulses towards anarchy, but they are breeding what Thomas Hobbes calls the lure of Leviathan, the mortal god of the state. And you can see the powerful movements in America towards state control. So we are fulfilling many of these trends which you've seen in history. Uh, At the conclusion of your first chapter, you asked a number of important questions. Here's what you wrote. With the erosion of Christian culture and the crisis of humanism, the direction of Western culture is uncertain. Will we see a desperate vacuum from which nihilism will rise? Will we lurch on uneasily to a new technological barbarism? Will a novel mysticism turn the West into the East? Or will the slow disintegration of Western culture herald a decline of power until the egoism of Western culture is judged by the hammer of the Soviets? You know, in hindsight, that last question seems a little dated given that the Soviet Union fell in uh, 1989. But much of what you wrote there seems to have been right on target. How would you answer some of those questions today? Just change the Soviets to the Chinese. Right, yeah. It works perfectly well, sadly, all too well. I think we've seen the deepening crisis of Europe. In other words, the non-American West. And clearly America, as the world's lead society, is facing its gravest crisis since the Civil War. So both the world's lead society and what used to be the beginning of the West, Europe, are in profound trouble. You know, I first met Malcolm Muggeridge in the 70s, and he was then in his 70s where I am now, But he was saying again and again, 
The liberal is like a person sitting on a branch and he's sawing it off himself. Right. Well, we've done it. The branch has fallen off. The foundations are given way. Europe is deeply in trouble. Sadly, America is following. And the church, and that's the problem, is not being what it should be at this crucial moment. Hmm. You know, a lot of people today are talking about the increasing rise of the nuns. Uh, that is, those who, when they're polled, say they have no religious affiliation. And that seems to fit with the rising nihilism that you talked about. And you also asked whether a novel mysticism would turn the West into the East. And that also seems to be something that's borne out in the polls as well, as more and more people here in the state say they believe in concepts such as reincarnation or karma. In fact, reflecting on these kinds of stats, Lisa Miller wrote an article at Newsweek titled, We're All Hindus Now. You know, back in the late 60s, I called it the clash between the mystics and the mechanists. Hmm. But some very mechanical parts of our world, naturalistic, reductionist, and so on. And then, obviously, that's unsatisfying for human beings. So they're going towards the East, which is an easy, and you unroll your meditation mat and do your yoga in the lunch hour and this sort of thing. But that's not changing humanity, and that's not changing our society. It's a, a refugee ideology. Mm. In your second chapter, you began to ask questions related to man's technological achievements. You wrote, how will future communications change and shape the life of man and expand or limit his power? What is predicated is nothing less than the availability of instant total information. This will depend on a national grid of computer databanks and within individual homes what could be called the world box, a highly advanced ceiling-to-floor television screen conveying the benefits and amenities now available through television, shopping guides, public libraries, cinemas, newspapers, encyclopedias, and university courses. This would convey instant total information, but it would also mean that the state would have instant total information on each private citizen. Such progress is thus double-edged. Wow, I think about 90% of that was right on target. In one fell swoop, you described the coming of the internet, big screen TVs, Netflix, Amazon.com, Wikipedia, and even the big question that a lot of people are talking about now relating to data collection and privacy concerns. Well, that one's absolutely fascinating to me because much of that also comes from the French Revolution. How so? You go back to a gentleman called Adam Weishaupt, however you pronounce it in German, He was brought up a Jesuit, but he became an atheist. But he took the Jesuit ideas of total control through the confessional, Hmm. and he used it in the early atheist revolutionary. So that's behind the KGB and the secret police. In other words, if through confession you know everything about a person's secrets, they're totally under your control. And, of course, you think of China. The government has zero trust in the citizens. So where you have low trust, you have to have high control and therefore 2 billion cameras. Interesting. Now, our control in the West is not political, although it's creeping in. Our control is commercial. Yeah. And you can think of how that data collection, one click away and so on, and if it's all free, we are the product. You know, Google, Facebook, and others know all about our desires and preferences, and so they want to sell us things. Now, that's incredibly dangerous when that goes beyond commerce to politics. And you can see now how Google and Facebook, and they have become, take, say, the long march, back to what we were saying earlier, we've got the rise of one-party boardrooms, one-party newsrooms. We've got one-party faculties on many campuses. We got one party 
state, California. Yeah. If we have one-party politics through the triumph of the radical left, that's disastrous for American democracy and the republic. So that surveillance creep is incredibly important. It's rooted, though, in the French Revolution again. You also opined that in the not-too-distant future, experience makers will attempt to simulate the pleasures of Disneyland in a variety of created spaces, and that this psychologization of environments will be a new form of mood engineering. But you conclude that the constant simulation of varied experience to ensure human happiness is not only abysmally short-sighted in its crassy materialistic values, but also remarkably reminiscent of Huxley's Brave New World. What you wrote there in some ways reminds me of a few megachurches that I've uh, visited over the years, you know, where the campus sort of has the feel of a theme park. Yeah. Not only is there a huge play area for the little kids and there's a rock climbing wall and and the adults, of course, have the option to worship in whatever style of music they're most comfortable with, from the golden oldies to country or hip hop. So has it been surprising to you that what you predicted as aspects of our increasingly secular culture in some ways seems to describe many of our contemporary evangelical megachurches in our day? Not really, not at all. After I'd been at Labrie, I went to Oxford, did my doctorate on Peter Berger. And as you probably know, much of his thinking in the sociology of knowledge describes how the church has become conformed to modern society rather than the other way around. Rather than transforming society into the image of the gospel, it's conformed to modern society. And so I was actually the first with a little book, Dining with the Devil, to give a critique of the megachurches, because they were an expression of modernity, not of the profound relevance of the gospel. Hmm. So no, I haven't been surprised. My sorrow today is that because of that continuing wilderness over 50 years, the American church is the only one in the Western world which is a huge majority. Hmm. But at this critical moment, uninfluential. Wow. In other words, we're not salty. We're not light-bearing because we're more worldly than shaped by the word. And that's a tragedy. So the deepest problem is us. Huh. You also speculated that cheapness and confusion will be the religious climate of the next years. If it is twice as easy for a Christian to speak into such a situation, it is also twice as hard to speak to it intelligibly. Faith that is faddish can be as dangerous as faith that is false. What makes you say that? The gospel is profound, but you look at all the versions of cheap copies of the gospel we've had in the last 50 years. Many of them have been huge bestsellers, but they haven't been the real gospel. They've amounted to virtually nothing, and that's the tragedy. I am an unashamed evangelical. I believe evangelicals are those who define themselves by the good news of the gospel. That's the early church. Yep. That's the Reformation. The reformers called themselves, as you know well, evangelicals. They didn't call themselves Protestants. Their enemies called themselves Protestants. So I'm an evangelical. But today, the number of people who are abandoning it because they see it only political right. or only cultural. Right. But that doesn't mean that the real thing is tarnished. No, not in reality. So I'm an evangelical. We need revival and reform to go back to what we should be. Now, speaking of the wider culture, you predicted that the essential feature of marriage in the future will be its impermanence. 
In fact, you also suggested that there would be, quote, an increase in single unmarried adults having children, as well as homosexual marriages. Again, your predictions seem to have been right on target. And I'm wondering if you can help our listeners to see how it is that our views of sex and marriage relate to these larger cultural shifts. I think to understand the crisis of marriage, the crisis of the family, we have to look both at modernity and at modern ideas, and they're different. So take the sexual revolution in terms of modern ideas. It interestingly goes all the way back. It's not Hugh Hefner right. or Playboy or The Pill, 1960s again. It goes back to the French Revolution and actually comes from the same quarter in Paris that the political ideas came from, the Palais Royal. Now, if you look at the architects of it, like uh, the Marquis de Sade or later Wilhelm Reich, Reich says quite honestly, and he's writing in the 1920s then, they will only win, and they're trying to overturn 2,000 years of Western civilization. They will win when they overcome, one, the church, and two, parents. Hmm. For example, that's why you want sex education at three, Yeah, because then you're ruling out parents. And you can see how powerful that is in terms of gender and so on. But then look on the other side, modernity, incredible mobility today. You know, people who lived in a village or a small town, they were held accountable and a lot of freedom in the 18th century novel and so on was people breaking away from their villages and small towns and having freedom in the big city of London or wherever. But of course, now we are totally unaccountable. We are so mobile, like loose pinballs ricocheting around. So who holds anyone accountable? And so you think of temptation. We are more anonymous through mobility than any generation in human history. Yeah. But you think of modernity. It's very corrosive, as are modern ideas. So put the two together. The onslaught on marriage, traditional marriage, Christian marriage, or whatever, has been very, very profound. Along those lines, you wrote that if there are no absolutes, then normality itself is relative and must be dictated by an arbitrary absolute created by the state or by the consensus of the population. Well, the first to see this, of course, Dostoevsky, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Right. But now we have modern philosophy and ideology giving us the reasons for that. So if you move from Nietzsche to Foucault and Derrida, if God is dead and truth is dead, there's nothing objective, nothing universal. Right. Everything is what they call socially constructed. Well, that's just a power game. And that's the danger where we are today. Of course, this is becoming very radical with what's called gender studies and then intersectionality. Right. So they say even things like handicap are a matter of social constructionism. This is very radical. And in the name of that, as you know well, you can defy your body. If I feel I'm a woman this afternoon, I can be a woman. Yeah. Now, this is absolutely absurd. And you can see how a lot of modern thinking leads to nihilism. It also leads, at the end of the day, to madness. Hmm. It doesn't mean everyone goes mad. It means that some are the victims of a kind of power-driven nihilism, but some are espousing things that are absurd. And we've got to be like the small boy who tells the emperor, you've got no clothes on, your majesty. I mean, this is absurd, but it's the logical development of the ideas that have come with the rejection of the Bible and the gospel. Now, at one point in your book, you argued that a defining feature of the new left 
was its open espousal of violence. So what were some of the things that you had in mind when you wrote those words back in the early 70s? And do you think that there are any similarities to what we're seeing today? Well, in the 60s, you had a lot of people justifying violence, Franz Fanon and people like that. In other words, evils such as colonialism and other forms of oppression were so great that not only could violence remove the oppressor, violence would help people discover their voices and become their true selves. And it was utopian view of violence. You've got similarities today. You know the saying, this is no time for respectability politics. Hmm. No one's it takes violence. Now, biblically, we put it like this. Words create worlds, which is why we've got the Lord created the world with words. Yeah. But we create worlds with our words, which is why we've got to treat truth and respect and love in our words. And so when words break down, violence is never far away. And you can see in the dynamics of violence, René Girard has a lot of say about this. You have the rise of violence and then eventually scapegoating. Right. And when you have all against all, such hate grows, and hate is a kind of outrage gone murderous through being blocked and frustrated and misdirected and so on. So America today, 50 years later, is in a very dangerous place because of the lack of a challenge to violence and the lack of alternative to violence. And we who love Jesus should be champions of not just the word, but of words right. and restoring truth, respect, love in the way we speak to people. In the response to the increased violence that you had witnessed back in the late 60s and early 70s, you decided to tackle this issue head on in one of your chapters in The Dust of Death. In fact, you wrote that violence may be pragmatically successful in overturning an existing order that is corrupt, but it is utopian to imagine that the next order will be free of all such problems. The continuity of a fallen nature in the most idealistic revolutionaries makes sport of pre-revolution promises. All men are fallen, you say. We as well as they, I as well as you. Is this basically your way of summarizing Jesus' teaching that he who lives by the sword will die by the sword? Yeah, but more than that, the whole biblical idea of fallen nature. Yeah. The challenge of the radicals, I'm surprised more preachers haven't picked that up today. Yeah. When they talk of racism... There's something very odd about it. They try and cure racism by saying it's everywhere. Hmm. Now, some of what they're saying is actually rather good. Someone may be racist, even if they're unaware of it. Now, some of it's very bad. Right. It's just a way of manipulating people and so on. We could get into that. But it's not that far from a biblical view of sin. We are sinners, whether we're aware of it or not. Even the good things we do are touched by self-interest and false loves, and so on. So the best we do is always sinful. The heart's deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. Now, put that in terms of revolution. The greatest evils in history have been done not by criminals with a low view of human nature, but by utopians. Hmm. Mao probably killed 70-odd million of his fellow Chinese. He was utopian. Right. He described himself as an artist with a blank canvas and so on. Utopians do the worst evil, but most revolution is utopian. In other words, as Thomas Paine said, they're making the world anew. As the French Revolution said, you're turning it back to ground zero, time-wise. No, you're not. 
we're still wretched fallen sinners. The Bible is not revolutionary in that sense. There's a total transformation, so we're new people. No. We're sinners who may be redeemed, but growth in Christ is slow and incremental, and we have to lay down the habits of following the virtues of love and all the things that are ways of following Jesus. We are the realists of history. We're not utopian. So are you saying that when people stop believing in original sin and become more Pelagian in their outlook, that the end result is that they end up being more tempted to pursue violence as a means of achieving a better society? Oh, absolutely. There's a very simple reason why. The utopians have an ideal which for us will only happen when the Messiah comes, not before. Right. But for them, they want it here and now. So there's a gap between the ideal and the real. How do you bridge the gap? Force, coercion, violence might be engineering. It might be re-education camps or whatever. Mm. But you bridge the gap between the ideal and the real by coercion, which is another word of violence. Is it also possible that the more clear-headed you are about man's fallen nature, the more you're protected from the dangerous idea that evil is only something that exists out there on the side of my opponents? Absolutely. In here, in my heart. Right. As Solzhenitsyn's point when he lay in the rotting straw that the line doesn't run between nations, but down every single human heart. Yeah. You know Robert Murray McChain, the great young Scottish preacher who died at 29. Famous story of one day a woman congratulated him on his holiness. He looked at her sternly and said, Madam, if you could see in my heart, you would spit in my face. Ooh, wow. And that, that's me, you know. I'd be horrified if everything I thought or even that I'd done was out on the front pages of the Washington Post. That's why forgiveness is so wonderful. And, you know, I love the fact the greatest king in the Old Testament, he committed adultery, he committed murder. Yeah. But he's forgiven. So uh, one of the questions that you ask in this chapter on violence is this. How can Christians live realistically in a world where violence of power without principle is the order of the day. After reflecting on that question for almost 50 years, how would you answer that question now? I can't say I've reflected every day on that question for 50 <laughs> years. Put it like this, Shane. Uh, Rabbi Heschel used to say, one of the great mysteries of history is why there are not more voices against the cruelty and brutality of oppression. Hmm. And his answer is, that the abuse of power is the worst thing about humanity, and humans worship power, hmm. whether it's sheer might or the spectacle of might. We worship power. Great athletes or whatever it is, we worship that. So the tragedy today is Americans have drunk the left-wing Kool-Aid, hmm. and they're ashamed of so much of our Christian past. But the first voices were the prophets. From Amos and Micah and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah down to John Woolman or William Wilberforce or William Carey, we are the great reformers of history. So away with this wretched guilt. We are on the side of the greatest reforms of history, the strongest voices against power, against the abuse of power, and we've got to recover that again today. There's a book doing the rounds, The Color of Compromise, James Tisby. Look up the page on Wilberforce. It's a Marxist description of Wilberforce. Hmm. Absolutely and utterly appalling. 
my ancestors, Arthur Guinness, they knew Wilberforce. They supported Wilberforce. Hmm. Slavery in human history is sadly the norm. Right. Abolition is the exception, the novelty. And evangelicals were the abolitionists. And we should be immensely proud and grateful. And dismissing our own great heroes the way Tisby does, disgrace. Here's an important question that you ask your readers to consider. What does it mean in daily life to love our neighbor, to forgive the man who has wronged us, to seek change by reconciliation and not by means of violent revolution? This question that you've asked, I think, really helps me to identify the self-righteousness that is inherent in groups that advocate violence. They're basically saying, in effect, there's no use talking through our differences any longer. You people are evil, and the only thing left to do is to destroy you. No, that's right. Whereas I think forgiveness is a unique biblical virtue, like freedom. Yeah. And our Lord's forgiveness goes beyond anything, even in the Old Testament. Hmm. And I know Jewish friends who balk at our Lord's words, love your enemy. Hmm. And of course, to us, the challenge of forgiveness, 70 times 7, you know, my parents lived in China where we were when the Japanese invaded, 17 million were killed. Wow. We lived later in the city of Nanking, which had been brutalized with the rape of Nanking. Hmm. We were caught in a famine, partly through the Japanese, partly through the nationalists, in which five million died in three months. So my father often said the hardest thing was to leave China and leave behind two little graves, as he put it, my brother's graves. But biblically, nothing anyone will ever do to us equals or rivals what we did to the Lord, and we've been forgiven. And if we've been forgiven like the cross forgives us, we pass it on. It's not because we're heroes of virtue, because we're just passing on what we've been given in a far greater way. And I, I love that. There's nothing more radical than the grace and forgiveness and mercy that you have in the cross. Yeah, it's like the parable of the talents where you have Jesus saying, you know, there was a king who forgave one of his servants basically a zillion dollars. And then that guy went out and you know, was choking a guy for 20 bucks. I mean, that's the difference between God's grace versus the sin that we commit against each other. No, that's right. And think of that in today's terms. If everything's power, you can only retaliate. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the retaliation, the action, breeding the reaction just mounts, 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 right. mounts. The anger mounts, the outrage mounts, the rage mounts, the hate mounts. And that's where America is today. And that's disastrous. Now, in your book, you make a distinction between the use of force, which is necessary, and an eruption of violence, which you say is always wrong. In fact, you say that, quote, no force that does not issue from justice and that is not restrained by justice can achieve justice. Outside of this, there is only violence. Can you help our listeners to get a better grasp of the distinction you're making there? Well, that's obviously a biblical idea, which modern atheism and so on hasn't the right to make. But biblically, justice is grounded in the character of God. Justice is expressed in the way a human treats a fellow human, also made in the image of God. So you've got a high view of justice, which should be behind judges, the notion of no partiality and no bribery, and no use of money to sway the votes of people, and so on. So you've got principles of justice which should be behind 
the arm of justice, whether it's a policeman or a judge or whatever it is. And that's wonderful. But we should be very aware of the principles of justice, but then the way they are open to abuse. Now, if you look back in history, the Greeks were the first people, apart from the Jews, who had someone speaking up on behalf of people who are oppressed and victimized. But people were very leery of that because they're aware that whoever spoke for you, say you hired a lawyer, he was trained, he was brilliant, he was oratorically eloquent, he could sway things emotionally. And of course, with money, the powerful never need be in trouble Mm -hmm. because you just hire the better lawyers. And of course, you have all that in the Bible. The strongest strictions against those who are trying to use money and bribery and so on to sway judges is biblical. All goes back to that wonderful view. So force is the use of force justified by principle, above all, the principle of justice. Whereas violence, if you don't have any principle and everything is only power, everything is basically violence. Right. And this is why overreactions, even when the cause is noble and righteous, often cross the line from force to violence. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a God-given outrage. The world is wrong. That's the heart of sin. There's a fall here. So from a little five-year-old saying, that's not fair. He or she is often dead right. Yep. So we know instinctively what's wrong in the world, the death of a child or the rape of a child or whatever it is. That's outrage, justifiable anger against what's unfair, wrong, outrageous, whatever. But when outrage is blocked and frustrated, can't go anywhere, or it's misdirected, or it's overreacting, as you said, it quickly becomes murderous and it becomes violent and extremely dangerous. And that's where we are today. You tell the story in your book of a friend of yours who in those days was very close to certain black radicals whose involvement often led to acts of violence. But as he asked the question, what does the resort to violence signify? He saw that it often reflected a kind of terminal despair. The situation was understandable, but for the Christian, you say, the violent solution would be wrong. And so as a Christian, your friend could say, I too stand for human justice. I too am outraged by all that oppresses and dehumanizes you. But at this particular point, knowing the nature of violence and my calling as a Christian, I cannot go with you. That's powerful. It was in the 60s. And that should come up again today. Because again, when people just drink the Kool-Aid, they join BLM or whatever without thinking. And that's incredibly foolish. The fuel for rage, you say, is often sparked by propaganda that is poured onto a highly combustible situation. And so Christians should work to, quote, constantly expose and undermine this false propaganda with its spurious moral, psychological, and political claims. This has gotten a little harder for us to do in an age of social media, hasn't it? Totally. The lie in propaganda was always hard to counter. But with social media, on the one hand, the brevity of it. Yeah. On the other hand, the instantaneity of it. You have to answer quickly mm-hmm. and briefly. And then the social consensus of the easily created mob. Now, put those three things together, and the social media are very, very dangerous. Doesn't mean don't use it, but use it with incredible care because you're very soon out of your depth. You also write that in situations poisoned by injury and aggravated by the evasion of responsibility and guilt, 
You say there's an atmosphere of full recrimination which erupts in violence. To accept blame or to forgive offenses shortcuts the reciprocal nature of violence and recrimination. This principle applies in all tense situations, ranging from quarrels on a tenement staircase to international problems. Always, it is forgiveness, not violence, which is cathartic. What's the point you're making there? Only forgiveness frees. In other words, when you have action that breeds reaction and retaliation and then resentment, whatever small or large evil started it, it grows, grows, and grows. It mounts and mounts and mounts until you have a highly combustible situation, which we've got on the left today in the streets or in Middle East and so on. Now, what deals with it? Well, only addressing the evil and repentance and confession and so on. Now, we've got to unpack all of those. Yeah. Take, say, forgiveness. We've got to recover the fact forgiveness is not sloppy sentimentalism. Forgiveness really cuts off the burden of the past and opens up the future. And that's why it's no cliche to us to say, as I said before, you know, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Forgiveness is radical. Now, you could say the same depth about confession. I mentioned Foucault, Michel Foucault, who, who hated the gospel. <laughs> and he was an atheist of the atheists and sadly a gay who died in through picking up AIDS in a San Francisco bathhouse. But Foucault once said, the one thing I admire about the Christian faith is confession. Hmm. Because in genuine confession, you have a rare moral act. Someone is going on record against themselves. Hmm. That's incredible. I sinned. I blew it. I murdered. I lied. I committed adultery. I whatever. And that's terrific. And that's what we need. In other words, sin, the heart of sin is irresponsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? The, the woman you gave me. Sin refuses to take the buck, yep. passes the buck. So in confession, you say, it was me. I did it. These things are not just personal, deeply personal, but they have political ramifications, right. social ramifications. Toward the end of your book, you make the case for the reexamination and rediscovery of the truth of historic Christianity. In fact, you called for a reformation of its truth and a revival of its life, because even then you noticed that much of contemporary Christianity, having missed its way, has attempted to rediscover it in a flashy display of trendy relevance or to stop the clock and enjoy the frozen atmosphere of a more favorable historical climate. Do you think much has changed today? Well, a lot has changed in the sense that the 60s were close to the 50s. So much of America was still living in that old world. When I came in 68, I only met one evangelical leader, Carl Henry, who had a real grasp of all that was happening. Most people were shocked or lament, but, and they were simply out of it. Evangelicalism woke up in 75, and it produced the reaction that became moral majority. And since then, what you've seen, I think, Shane, various attempts to be relevant the political right, the megachurch movement, etc., etc., etc. But all of those have been misplaced in one way or another, and they failed. So we're now at the end of that. You talked about the nuns. For me, the nuns are not atheists. They're simply the old nominals who no longer believe it. It was popular then to go to church. 
they didn't have Christian convictions or Christian experience, but they were there. And when it became unpopular to be that, they became nuns, but they're not real atheists. But we are in a different world today. So I think we either see a revival and reformation of the Church of Christ, and we are a majority, as I said. And the scandal is that tiny groups like our Jewish friends, they're tiny compared with us, but they punch well above their weight intellectually, financially, entertainment world, you name it, all power to them. We need to recover being salt and light out of faithfulness. That could change everything. But we've got to learn from all the poor efforts we've made, mega church movements and so on, where they were wrong. And we must do better this time I mean, to be more faithful. One of the areas you say it needs reformation is the understanding of faith. Faith, you wrote, is considered emotional or psychological, but rarely intellectual or credible and hardly a question of truth. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, even the way that Christians use the word faith, often it's used to refer to some kind of blind subjective leap that in many ways is the very opposite of the way that word is used in the New Testament, isn't it? Absolutely. There's only one reason to believe at the end of the day, because we believe it is true. God is there, that Jesus did rise from the dead, etc., etc. It's true. No, no, but back up, Shane. We're in a world, we often use the word relativism. Everything's relative, it's socially constructed, but we also, we're in a world of emotivism. Right. Where feeling is more important than thinking. Right. So that goes back, say, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and you can see again, what I feel is good is good. Yeah. What I feel is bad is bad. You think that's crazy, but when someone says, I, I, I feel that I'm a woman in a man's body, or I feel the other way around, feeling and emotivism have become everywhere. And so we've got to get back to a tough-minded view of what faithfulness is. It's much more than feeling. You noted back then that fundamentalists, though they were often opposed to liberals, also stressed a kind of leap of faith and dismissed serious questions as intellectual smokescreens. And much that is taught in those circles has to be unlearned in the wider school of life. And it's not surprising, you say, that universities are littered with dropouts from such groups. Their non-rational, subjective faith is cruelly punctured by varsity-level questions, and many manage to survive only by resorting to a severely schizophrenic faith, which they hold to be true religiously, but not intellectually, historically, or scientifically. Do you think there's been improvement in that front? I think there's been considerable improvement in that front. Yeah. Harry Blamire's book in 63, The Christian Mind, and he said the first thing to say about a Christian mind there isn't is any. that there isn't yeah. one. Now you think of things like the Christian Study Center movement, the great growth in Christian scholarship, especially in science and in history and considerably in sociology. We've come a long way, thank God. But we've still got a long way to go. Yes. In other words, Back to where we began the discussion, the long march through the institutions, that took them 50 years, regaining the mind of America, the intelligentsia, is not going to be the work of months or years. It's going to be a long time, decades. But that's what we've got to do. Our equivalent, I don't believe in the long march, that's Mao, but I do believe in the salt and light. That's our Lord's way. But we've got to think of 50 years of faithfulness and winning back the mind of America, because our longing is that they will know Jesus, but that together we will create a society that is just and free and human. 
That's the issue for the future. The Chinese Marxist way, disastrous. The left-wing neocultural way, disastrous. So the West, at an incredible moment, so is humanity, with singularity ahead of us. Can humans still create societies that are human and just and stable and peaceful and free? We would say yes, but we've got to demonstrate it and argue for these great truths, including arguing at the universities. And if we're going to make a winsome case for truth, for biblical faith, then we need to recover the art of Christian persuasion, which is something you've addressed in another book that you released a few years ago, Fool's Talk. What are some of the things you addressed in that book? Well, persuasion, the old word apologetics, are often called advocacy today. As soon as public life grows more secular and private life infinitely more diverse and pluralistic, people won't speak or understand Christian. We've got to be able to speak to whoever they are, just that we need to be multilingual. And that, of course, requires persuasion. Now, there's all sorts of things that are part of that. For example, we have to know what it is to ask questions. We have to ask questions to discover where people are. Someone says, I'm an atheist. Well, can't jump to a conclusion because that person may not believe in God, but why? Right. Could be because of a bad experience of the church or his own family or whatever. So we've got to ask questions first to find out where people are, what made them what they are, and then to ask questions to push them out to be true to what they say they believe, because we know it won't work. And questions are a propulsion that's part of persuasion. So question arts, just one example, good persuasion is very different from the old style of witnessing. And you say the old style of witnessing was often cookie-cutter approach, but never appealed to those who were radically hostile. How do we persuade those who are radically hostile to things Christian? We don't just preach the gospel. The gospel is good news to people in a bad situation. So people are not in a bad situation. As Jesus said, I didn't come for those who think they're healthy. Yeah, He came for those who knew they weren't. And in the same way, you look at, say, Elijah in front of the prophets, 850 against him, including the royal family. He doesn't say, come back to God, or Israel will fall apart, like some poor preacher today. He says, if Baal is God, follow Baal. Now, that's incredibly daring, but he knows if the Lord is God, Baal isn't. Yeah. So the fastest way to bring them back to where they can be open to proving the Lord is for the disproving of Baal. So he begins with the negative to lead them to the positive. Schaefer's term, you push people to the logic of their assumptions. Why? You know they're not true at the end of the day. And when they've seen that, they've got a problem. Then the gospel becomes a wonderful answer by force of contrast. Folks, I've been talking with Oz Guinness about his book, The Dust of Death, which has recently come out in a new edition. If you'd like to investigate this topic further, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, where you can find links to various books and articles written by Oz Guinness, as well as other related material. You can also find out about upcoming events and ways to support this podcast. Simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Mm